0: Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, Thank you to everybody who's joined up to the Patreon page. It's patreon, P A T R E O N dot com slash philosophy, W I L O S O P H Y. Um, I've been responding to a whole bunch of people's messages on there and uh, we've kind of cracked just to give you an insight, because I appreciate that anyone has got any money to give during this time. So thank you very much to those who are. And absolutely, if you can't afford to help out right now, I also totally understand that. But we're about halfway to where it would need to be for this to be a gig that looked after itself, basically, to give you a bit of a clue. If we could double the amount that we've got now, the amount of subscribers, that we have now. Basically, we'd have enough money every month, along with a bit of advertising that comes along to make sure that everyone gets paid properly and to allow me to travel, because this is what I'm going to need to do now... There's some kookaburras in the background, which is about as close to a decent laugh that I've gotten in a while. So, you know what, I'm just going to stand here and soak that up for a little bit. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. Um, Might be the only gig that I'm doing for a while, uh, doing my podcast introduction in front of kookaburras. Okay, yes, I am a little isolation bananas tonight I can already tell so I will keep this intro short and sharp patreon.com slash philosophy so basically it's like a crowdfunding page and uh, you can pay as little as a dollar a month you sign up and basically it helps me pay everybody who's involved in this podcast and yeah the aim is if we could double what it is right now Um, I would have that fun there to be able to go and do interviews face-to-face when eventually I'm allowed to travel again. So that's kind of the aim in this time. If we could get to that uh, level, that would give me great confidence that we could go on making the podcast and putting out at least one episode a week and perhaps more. If that's something you're interested in, you can let me know uh, on Patreon. So uh, if you join up to the Patreon page, you can just direct message me there and uh, I am responding to everybody who's direct messaging me on the Patreon page and there's been some good guest suggestions and there's been some great and intelligent and interesting feedback on some of the things that people have said in episodes it's a great little community there already and if enough people join up I'm just going to do a whole bunch of other cool stuff there because it feels like it'd be cool to have a just little little fun club where we can just uh you know talk about interesting things in an interesting way without it getting heated or you know um uh well without getting all internet basically i guess is what i'm trying to say so anyway uh, i'll tell you more about that when there is more to tell but if you want to be part of that or just send me a message or just support the podcast patreon.com slash philosophy today's episode is a pre pre pre-pandemic or pp uh, so basically, this is an episode I did with Mark Wilson. Now, you might not know Mark. Uh, those of you who know the band Jet will know Mark, and uh, music fans will know Mark. He is an Australian uh, musician who plays in a whole bunch of cool bands, but I guess the biggest one, the most successful one, is a little band called Jet. And it's an amazing story for a boy from Geelong uh, getting uh, involved in one of the biggest rock bands in the world and touring all over the world and what he learned from that. But also uh, a lot of stuff that isn't about Jet at all, just his perspective on the world. I really enjoyed this chat and the only reason that it hasn't come out uh, sooner, well, you know the reason that it hasn't come out sooner. Uh, So... (laughs) everybody knows the reason i don't even know why i think that i have to make up like that i have to tell you what the reason is right now yeah well all the way will everybody notices that everything changed forever it's fine uh so the episode is coming up now and uh i really enjoyed this chat with mark wilson and i hope you will the too. Hello and welcome to
1: Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Here's how the podcast starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you? I am Mark Wilson. Hello, Mark Wilson.
2: Now, who who are you, Mark Wilson? Uh, I'm a member of the band Jet. The Jet? Australian rock and roll band Jet. Yes. Amongst oh. other things. I said
1: that in like a way like I was surprised yeah, by like, that oh, information. It was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, amongst other things. So a musician first and foremost is how you describe yourself? I would say so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, what musical, I'm always interested in this about musicians. What musical
2: instruments do you play? Uh, I'm first and foremost a bass player, Mm. which is, you know, not that common. Uh, but I started playing bass when I was a kid and I've always been obsessed with it. So why bass? I don't know. I think it's from Beatles records when I was a kid and being able to pan over and just hear the bass and the drums on their own. I was like, oh, that's cool. I'm not interested. And I'm also six foot two. So, right. you know, it's a bigger <laughs> instrument, which is, you know, six foot two in the real world in, in football is kind of whatever, you know, average, but foot, uh, six foot two in music, mm. you know, the sk- Yeah. You're, you're, you're quite tall. There's, there's very few taller. Yeah, exactly. So, um, well, all right. So tell me
1: this, do you have a, and this is one of those things that I'm always interested in when it comes to the bass. Because there was a period of time where there was only two ways you could play the bass, which was really high or really low. Yeah. Uh, but you, I, when I've seen you play, I don't feel like you're either a high or a low. Yeah. I feel like you're a middle
2: bass Yeah, equatorial. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm just like, slice it down the middle. <laughs> yeah. Put in both camps.
1: <laughs> uh, so tell me this, sir. Uh, uh, this is uh, what I ask on this podcast. Do you have a philosophy of some kind? Because oh. we'll start with that and then we'll talk about uh, whatever it is that we end up talking about.
2: I would love to say I do, but it's still something that I'm striving for. I think it's something you chase, you know, trying to figure it all out and, um, uh, you know, work out what helps your brain tick and how, what makes your life meaningful. Okay. so and I think I'm on a that constant yeah. constant journey to figure it out. I'm not a particularly philosophical person, uh-huh. so I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a super deep thinking kind of artist type. Right. I, I prefer the lighter side of life, but at the same time, you know, You have your own things you're dealing with in your own, you know, thoughts and disappointments and, and, you know, things that make you happy. Like anybody, you know.
1: Okay, so tell me firstly about the lighter side of life stuff
2: because I reckon that's a
1: a cool attitude to explore, which is this idea of, you know, you even framed it yourself in that like there is a cliche around, you know, sometimes musicians and artists that it is all, you know, tormented and darkness and, you know, and but you were like, you know, I play play
2: rock music in a rock band. It's pretty fun. Yeah, it is fun. But, you know, at the same time, like anybody, you have moments of, of sort of, fear and worry and stuff, but you know, that's just human, human behavior. Uh, but the lighter side, you know, I just, I find myself to be someone who is always looking for the humor in something rather than looking for the, uh, sort of the darkness or the, the mood in something. I prefer the mood to be light. And, and, you know, and, po- and positive, I guess. It's like, the, that's where I thrive, you know.
1: And is that a, a role that you will tend to play in groups? So if, you know, there's a say band dynamic or group dynamic, are you the sort of person who's trying to bring that sort of comical or humorous or fun energy to that group?
2: Yeah, I think I, it's pretty cliche bass player thing mm. to be that kind of glue, you know, that you've got a lot of big personalities in groups and a lot of the time you find the bass players kind of like, well, as they say in, in Spinal Tap, like yeah. the lukewarm water. Right. You know? <laughs> There's fire and ice, and, which is not that flattering, but at the same time, you know, like it, it rings true. It, it, it's good to have all kinds of personalities within a group of musicians. And, you know, I've still got my own ego. Don't worry about that. But maybe I just use it in a different way. Because I imagine one of the
1: most challenging things about being in a band, yeah, particularly a band, it occurs to me, because... So often, you know, I've worked in group dynamics, you know, working in teams, working with people. And of course, you'll constantly have to balance your personality and your ideas with the you know, personalities and ideas of the greater group. It makes a lot of sense. But a band in particular feels like there is, you know, a lot of dynamics going on and mm. like a, a lot of bands end up, you know, well, break up. You know, yep. break up because those dynamics eventually cannot be maintained. So, you know, what's, what's that experience like being in a band?
2: Well, it's a lot of time together, you know. Uh, it's one of those jobs where often, I mean, you work together, you often live together, mm. and on your day off, you're, they're the only people you know in town, so you hang out, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, you know, if, you find, if you're in Chicago and, you know, you've got a day off and you mm. think, oh, who am I going to call? Oh, Cam's just down the other end of the hall. See what he's <laughs> up to, you know. But you know that, and that, like, you know, and also the thing with ba- a band is like, I start. I, I'm I'm nearly forty. I'm mm. forty later this year. Um, I started in this group when I was 22, and I have a theory that when you have huge success when you're quite young, because our band, you know, multi-platinum records, by the time we were like 22, 23, your life gets paused. And your, your abilities and your sort of mental development gets paused at that age. And it wasn't until the band, we broke up in 2010 for a few years that I realized that I don't know how to do anything. I'm a kid. I thought I knew everything. I've seen all these things and I've done all this amazing stuff that I'd never have dreamed of, but I don't know how to do anything in the real world, you know, and I had to learn how to do that stuff. Like, I guess kind of like a footballer would be when they find themselves like injured and their career's over like that. And some people don't mm-hmm. deal with it so well. Some people do, you know, you're not, there's less support network in the rock and roll business though, to like kind of work it all out. So, you know, it's not it was the equivalent an, of going and coaching country footy. Exactly. Yeah. Or playing for the Yarrawonga pigeons, right. for, you know,
1: <laughs> for cash. <laughs> um, so, okay. Like, well, I think that's a really interesting point for us to start at. Let's start there and then we can explore backwards and forwards what happened. But you've been in this band that we we might go back and wander through some of that at some stage, what that was like, but being a kid and, you know, getting to tour the world and, you know, play with all these amazing bands and have this incredible success. But take us to that point where the band decides, and was it a... Is it a band decision that the band is going to break up or was there, you know, people within the band who were very keen not to keep going and other people in the band who were a bit keener to keep going? I mean, I can imagine even that, you know, mm. in a band dynamic, there would this, and I don't think that's a scandalous thing to say. I'm sure there are probably people I, I at would, different ends of that spectrum.
2: I would say that, I I would say that hundred percent of the time mm. there'd be different views on what should, should happen within the band. Uh, if it you know, when the band breaks up, cause yep. I mean, we got back together afterwards. Yeah. Took a while, but you know, took a lot of water under yeah. the bridge. But I remember when the band broke up, I had a sense of relief, but I, I was terrified cause I didn't know how to do anything else. Um, but at the same time I didn't want it to stop. Whereas Nick, he, he just wanted to do something else, you know? Um, which you can, you know, I understand, but it's 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 hard to when you don't when you're sort of blindsided by it, it's it's hard to take, and you and you still, you know, there was resentment for a while from mm-hmm. me anyway, not n- probably more resentment of the situation rather than of the man, you know, mm-hmm. like because I understand the decision yeah. on a human level, on a level, human level, yeah, but but on a selfish yeah. level, I'm like. <laughs> What the fuck? What the fuck am I going to do? I've got a fucking mortgage that I've got to figure out. I get this for you, but for me, this is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: how do you reconcile that? I mean, you know, in an emotional sense. Like, you know, were you in a, like you talk about yourself as being someone who looks at the lighter side of life. Was that a dark moment?
2: That was one of the darkest. Uh, It was, it happened to coincide with um, me buying a house at the same mm. time, with not knowing this was happening, yeah. you know. Um, Could you not have given me a heads up when I was going to that auction? Yeah, yeah, Nick? yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, also, breaking, breaking, a relationship breaking uh, up at the same time. Uh, yeah. And then finding myself sitting in this beautiful new house, big house that I'd got, mm. uh, miserable and lost and scared and not sure of how I'm going to make this all work now. I don't know what to do. And in a way... That was a blessing because it made me, uh, figure, figure it all out. You know, how, wh- you know, like you're so used to your life being so regimented, scheduled. I've got years when it, our schedule was done from the start of the year through to the midway through to the next year, like a year and a half of, you know, what city you're going to be in, what you're going to be doing, when you are going to be recording all this and all of a sudden nothing. So it's quite, it was quite scary.
1: So... Yeah, it took me through a little bit of, how, you know, what that time was like, how long it took you from to kind of adjust to the fact that you suddenly weren't doing that. How did you c- c- come through this time? You talk about support networks, you know, there isn't that official support network mm. like, you know, so you were in a massive worldwide successful band and now you're Now you're not. Like, who was around? Was it friends? Was it family? Like, did you seek professional help in that regard? Like, how did you move forward
2: out of that? I I definitely lent on friends and family a lot. Uh, And it sounds like I'm complaining. But, you know, it's the same situation as anyone could find themselves in. It's just my parameters are different, yeah. you know, and I'm not complaining about my situation or anything, but. This is a safe space. You're yeah, yeah. allowed to, yeah, I <laughs> Yeah, because I'm, I'm blessed, you know, yeah. like I've had a great. Of I've, course. I've been like, very lucky. Mm-hmm. It's very, very rare that someone gets to experience the success mm-hmm. of, of, that I got at that age.
1: How do you reconcile? Sorry, we'll get back to the question I asked, but I yep. think that what you've just touched on is a, Really interesting area for me, and it's something that I've been trying to work out a lot in my own life because I've been extremely lucky and grateful to have the opportunities that I've had in the life that I've had and all these sort of things. So sometimes it feels like when things go wrong for you, mm. that you don't feel like you have the right to complain. Exactly, yeah. Is that how you felt? Yes, absolutely.
2: Yes. And when you do, mm. people are like, "Shut up!" Right. You, you know, you've got it. You've got this, this, and this, and this. And then sometimes you feel like no one's actually mm. hearing. Like, I'm, I'm breaking down here, I'm I'm stressed out and hurting and you can't help the parameters you live within you're still a human brain walking around in a skull, you know, that sometimes (laughs) is broken, not working correctly, you know, so um, yeah it was uh, definitely friends and family Mm. and happily uh, I met my now wife right at the end of the madness of, you know, when you go through your sort of lost weekend, I met my wife right at the end of that and you know, very grounding, very grounded person, very um, calm. Very opposite of me. It's good because like mm. we're not one of those arguing pe- uh, families because, like, she- I just can't argue with it. Like right. she's too she's too <laughs> calm, and you know, she's she's uh, she's uh, you know her her father's Swiss, so she's got a natural right. uh, <laughs> <laughs> natural neutrality. <you>
0: know?
1: <laughs> okay, so how long is this time period between the band? finishing and you going through a sort of dark place and coming out the other side, would you say?
2: Uh, I think once I just figured out how to, you know, how to think for myself and how to, how to get things moving on my own, you know, little projects and it's slow, you know, I feel like I'm still doing that. Even though the band's playing again, I've still, I feel like I'm way more proactive with what I want to do outside of the group and getting, and much better at making things happen you know, being, being proactive rather than waiting for things to come to me and say yes or no. And I say yes to a lot of things. It's one of my, one of my philosophies is always, if, it, if an opportunity comes your way, if it sounds if it sounds like it could be bad or good, say yes. And then if it's good, great. If it's bad, you just never, you know, never to do that again. Right. And also you probably have a funny experience. And I've, I've done some stupid things by just saying yes to weird opportunities and I've worked I worked on a huge UFC fight once as a fight inspector in the ring for the Holly Holm and Ronda Rousey fight because I got a phone call from somebody saying, a friend of mine who's a UFC ref saying, someone's pulled out, we don't have anything, anyone, we need a fight inspector, can you do it? And I was like, yeah. He's like, I thought you'd be up for it because, you know, it'd be in front of 60,000 people. And I had never even seen a UFC fight until, so I had to do some study and figure out how to do it. So hang on, what is the role of the fight inspector? You know the people that walk them out? Yeah. And and, and so basically the role of the fight inspector is you're in the you're in Eddie Stadium or whatever, Marvel Stadium. Right. I, I still call it Etihad, which I'm so many years behind, but um, <laughs> you're there and the fighter gets walked in. Like I'm not a UFC person at all, No. Like, <laughs> uh, they, they they come in to the venue to warm up and with their entourage and whatnot, and basically you shadow them everywhere they go and make sure that they're not taking drugs, cheating, drinking anything, not bringing any outside food or beverages or anything in. <laughs> like the cinema. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're, like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're like an usher. You're like a poorly paid usher. Right. Um, and then you, you're you there when they get in their hands taped up and, and then you sign off on the... And so how many the... fighters were you doing that for on uh, the day? It would have been w- every other fight. Okay, so all day from like five in the morning until five at night. What an incredible experience! I know.
1: So, what was the you take away from that experience? What was the thing that kind of stuck oh, with man.
2: you? Man, it was pretty incredible because everybody that I was assigned to, because you're like walking these people out into the ring, you're in the ring with them when they're warming up, in between the and there's sixty thousand people around. These people when they're starting are gods, you know. When they're when they're mm. arriving and they're in their dressing room, they're these Adonises and women and men, you know. They're just like. Powerful, you know, strong, confident people. Well, I mean, as are, you have to be to get to get to into be a mixed ring and martial arts fighter to have a in. cage yeah. fight. Like, I mean, essentially to go
1: up against the most dangerous people in the world. You know, to, in, who are the best fighters in. The, I mean, this is. I, I'm not a UFC fan either. It's not my cup of tea, to be honest. But like, you, you've got to admire the fact that these are people who are you yeah. know highly trained in being able to exactly. like that's all hurt they do. Other people. Yeah.
2: And th- what I saw is this duality between like this powerful, confident mm. human. And then after the fight, every, like I said, everyone I worked on, mm. all the fighters I was looking after got beaten. All of them? All of them. Mm. So I've n- probably never, never been asked back. back. <laughs> I, was say. I have been asked back. I've actually been asked <laughs> to do old, ones overseas. But I've all, curse. I've always been yeah. on tour. I'd, yeah. I'd go and do it again. Yeah. For, just yeah. for the Asked by a team of bookies.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, <laughs> So after the fight, your job Uh is to walk the battered, bruised, Mm -mm -mm. damaged person to the doctor where they get checked out and made sure they don't, you know, they're not, they don't need to go to hospital. Mm -hmm. And you see this person that you just saw that was just a huge personality crying, you know, with their, covered in blood, you know, like it was just this amazing, all within an, an hour or 45 minutes time, you see this sort of both ends of this sport. Or, or just like of this psyche, you know, like these people like pumping themselves up to get in and fight someone in a cage to being walked to the doctor by a bass player where you get paid, you know. <laughs> and then you, at the end you go like, better luck next time. What do you say? What do you say to these people? They've just been beaten. Well, was this the famous uh, first time Ronda Rousey yes. lost? Yes, So yep. that I made... didn't I didn't work on that particular okay. fight. I did the one before mm. it. Right. Oh, so okay, it was yes. a title fight before it because you take it in turns. Yes. So I was scheduled on the fight before. So I knocked off by that last fight. Okay. So you're not the rousy curse. That's no, not, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. But yeah, that's, I mean, this is an example of just like things saying yes, gets you that experience. And even Jet was that for me mm. saying, I met them in a pub. This is. Before. I was going to
1: say, how did Jet start? How old were you when?
2: In- well, they'd already were a band mm. and I was in a band, probably equal level, yep. you know, and no one knew of either of us, and I was playing a gig. I got <laughs> got asked to fill in for a band that pulled out at the Duke of Windsor in, in Paran. when it, It's a pizza shop now, but it mm-hmm. used to be yeah, yeah, a pub. Uh, me and my mate lived behind it, so they that, someone got stuck on, on the freeway, and they're, they're like, oh, we don't have an opening band. Do you guys want to do it? Because we live right behind. And we're like, yeah, sure, we'll do it. We went on 830 just to fill a hole, you know, and Nick and Chris from Jet were there having a meal. That's how early it was. They were having a palmer at the bar right. while we were playing and afterwards I was like, hey, man, you're like, you, you know, do you, want to, do you want to come and, uh, you know, we're looking for a bass player. You should come try out for us. And I was like, nah, i got a band, man. I'm already in a band, you know. And then I hung out with them all night, you know, just like yeah. oh, they, they seem like cool guys. And we had so much in common that I called Nick the next day and I was like, oh, you know, I think I'd like to come down and, and try out and, you know, imagine, imagine if I said no and left it there, how dark, the dark place I would be enough to, you know, I mean, 8 million records or whatever. I was going to say,
1: you would have been staring at whoever that dickhead was playing yeah, bass. Could yeah, exactly. Have, that could have been me. Um, so, but you're going into then a band that already exists. At this point, where are they in the, in Jets'
2: evolution? Oh, like, psh, Melbourne playing pubs, Yeah, you know, not, not really you know, opening up for other bands. We were probably on the similar level, mm-hmm. I'd say. Maybe they were a slight bit bigger, but, you know, just it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't worldwide yet. But it was, you know, people were starting to go, oh, you know, these guys are.
1: And did, uh, what, what songs were already in the set that would have ended up, like, you know, on the first
2: album? Uh, a lot, actually quite a few. That Like, I Give Me My Girl was in there yep. pretty early. You know, that was one of the demos that I got to learn, you know, a demo version of that. Um, yeah, that was in there. There, I mean, I'd say half of that first album was probably on recorded at a demo studio, you know, and I had a CD of.
1: So I'm very interested in this. Like, so when you get this CD, Mm. you know, and you go, here's, here's a few songs that we have that, you know, we'd like you to learn to come Mm. and play. It it does a song like, are you going to be my girl? Like, does it stand out to you immediately? Do you hear that at that level and go? You know this is going
2: to be a massive song. I thought this is a great song, but I didn't know I mean it was it was a slightly different version of it that you', you everybody would know now but essentially the bones of the song were the same for me I mean this is I'm going back quite a while right. so I can't remember but I remember thinking these a lot of these songs are really good songs and they're just tight well written and and the thing that was the most striking was how good Nick's voice was. He has like he had like a world class rock and roll voice. At that age, you know, Mm. and that was the thing you, a lot of people can write pretty good songs, but to have that voice that is almost once in a generation kind of voice, there's, you don't hear that much. And that's probably the thing that really stood out at that time. But yeah, they were like, I'll learn, learn three or four of these songs and then come down, you know, next week and, and play. But my nature is to like, okay, I'll learn 20 of these songs, all the demos, all the half songs and I'll play everything and I'll write new parts and I'll show up to rehearsal with all these new parts written because I think I can do a better job than what's on the demo. So I did that and um and <laughs> I remember Chris during the, my audition was like, "Oh man, that's really cool. You've written some uh you've written some new parts. They're really good." And I was like, "Yeah, man, I want to be in your fucking band." <laughs> like <laughs> The confidence you, you have as a 21, 22-year-old, yeah. I would never say that to anybody <laughs> now. And I, it's strange. You think your confidence would grow over time mm. and over, you know, having all this experience. But you get more insulin. You get more, I, I, I mean, I do, get more self sort of doubt. You didn't. I didn't give a shit about anything then, you know. Like I would just say what I thought and I didn't care what anyone else thought.
1: Do you miss that? Because I think that I was... A lot like that when I started, and I sometimes think about this when I'm, you know, thinking about my comedy. Is I was so much firmer in my opinions and so much bolder in the things that I would be angry about, you know, because I had these definitive ideas of how things should work mm. and how things should be.
2: And I still have a pretty definitive idea of how okay. things should be, but I, I probably keep it to myself a little more. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so where do you think? Is it just that you've lived a lot more life and you've had a lot more? you know, things happen in the world that you're not in that same way going, here I am, like I am at 20, or is it uh, a different strategy be. about like, I still want to get my you know, ideas in in my own way, but now it's yeah. not telling people what it is. It's a bit more of a process of negotiation. Yeah. I'd
2: say it's probably a bit of both, you know, and, and it happens. It's, it, it's pretty odd if it doesn't happen to you, I think, you know, mm. but yeah, I, I think you soften a little. Perhaps I don't know if "softens" is the right word, but you, you know, you, you're a bit more worldwise. You, like you said, you can you figure out more cunning ways to get your point across, rather than jumping up and scream jumping up and down and screaming your opinions to people. I'm still a bit of a social justice person, though. Like, and I can't help myself, like, just if I see someone just doing something just rude or, or you know,
1: give you know. me an example. Oh. What, what would it be that would trigger you to go into full social justice mode?
2: Oh, it'd just be like somebody at the airport in the lounge, like talking mm-hmm. really loud on their phone. Uh-huh. So everybody without hear.
1: consideration of other people, it's, it's, it's yeah.
2: consideration is the thing. Like mm. that's why I love going to Japan because it works like everything works. <laughs> people, they don't, pl- you know, the people are just like, it has to work because there's oh. too many people n- for it not to work. And, and I love how it all, it's not, I don't need everything ordered, but I like it when, you know, there's, everyone's got like, consideration for others you know people aren't just like cranking music out of their phone on the tram that drives me nuts a lot of things drive me nuts Mm. and and i used to say things to them and now i don't i just i just say them later to my wife and she's like it's good you didn't say Mm. that because like i just get into full-blown arguments with people and she would be like it makes me really uncomfortable (laughs) when you do that
1: i am interested in that though because i do think that there is a difference between public space and private space Mm. like i am so much more forgiving of somebody doing something in their own home in fact i think once the doors of your own home are are shut as long as you're not hurting anybody else you probably should be able to do pretty much do and say whatever it is that you want to do and say but i would love us all to have a little bit more consideration when we speak out when we step out in public that we are suddenly in a shared space with other people Mm. and so it's not just about how we want to behave and yeah. what we want to do. We, we are we are in an environment yeah. where we're sharing it with we other people. We are one people. out there. Yeah, but, yeah, exactly.
2: I agree. I'm, I'm with you hundred yeah. percent on this. Yeah. The Japanese
1: clean up their areas at sporting events yeah. afterwards.
2: The, the, the thing that blew my mind, the yeah. first time we played Fuji rock festival over there, uh, big, huge music festival in the mountains. Like, it, like it's a snowfield during winter and then it's, they do the festival. There. So it's beautiful green. I lush. hear it's a great festival. It's amazing. Yeah. It's more, it's probably my favorite in the world. Yeah. The first time I went and played that, I noticed people bought their rugs and they put them on the, on the ground, on the sort of hill Mm. behind the, you know, obviously in front of the stage, everyone's standing up, but beyond that, there's all these rugs and you put your rug down and that's where your rug lives Mm. for the whole festival. That's your spot. And people walk around them Mm. and I just thought that would never happen Mm. here. And the other thing I noticed- You put your
1: rug down and you look away and somebody would steal your fucking rug. It's
2: covered in mud. It's like- yeah. <laughs> There's a guy having a piss on your right? Exactly. <laughs> and the other thing I noticed, they, they carried around these little, um, like a little container that you, they would ash their cigarettes in, not put the butts in, mm-hmm. but put the ash in. And I was like, oh man, these people, especially when you've never been to Japan and you go you go there and experience it for the first time. Well, when I saw them, you know,
1: the, particularly at sporting events, that you, you see footage of the World mm-hmm. Cup, you know, football or the the Olympics or whatever, and you'll see the Japanese fans afterwards just picking up their rubbish and cleaning up their area. The thing that I always think is, why why don't we all do that? I know. Why is that not? Why is that the exception yeah. rather than the rule? What if it about it makes us think that we should go to these sporting events and they just leave just our shit leave on the everything
2: ground? Everything on the ground, yeah. I don't know, but you know, you do it, and I know I do it. Yeah, and I don't, and I say, don't worry about it. But I know in my heart of hearts that we should be we should be cleaning cleaning this up. But you know, I've been to the MCG before and dropped a you know plastic cup on the floor and being like, oh, ah, yeah. someone else Well, that.
1: that's, yeah, someone else's <laughs> job, I suppose. They'll pick that up.
2: But the other thing in, in Japan, everyone's got a job. Mm. Like everybody's, everybody's proud to do what they do. And, you know, I mean, I know that place, that place has its mm. own, yeah, you know, of course. issues yeah. that we don't probably see uh, from, from, you know, from our perspective. But, you know, I do like it.
1: Uh, th- one of those things is, it's very interesting to me is the, the world view you get, you know, you're speaking very passionately about like being in Japan and like that sort of culture. I mean, how many countries would have you have visited in your touring?
2: Oh man, it's hard to say, but a lot of them. (laughs) Yeah. Like a lot, right?
1: (laughs) Where's the most obscure place that you went to? Um, gee. Where did you find yourself one night and just think, wow, I never thought when I was growing up in, where'd you grow up? Geelong? Yeah. Yeah. When I I was growing up in Geelong that I'd ever make it to,
2: I'd say probably not that it's an obscure country, yeah. but sitting on Bill Gates' private jet was. <laughs> 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 we did a, we did a, played a Microsoft Christmas party. Right. And it was in Atlanta. Uh-huh. We were in LA at the yep. time. Well, I think we, we were in LA or we came in for Australia, mm-hmm. but got to LA and then we got on his jet and then he, f- we flew to Atlanta to do this party on his jet and we played an hour set. And then after the show, Bill comes in says thanks. Thanks for the show. Has a chat? I was like, fucking Bill Gates. And I was like, oh, he's actually quite tall. I was right. expecting to be a little nerdy, <laughs> like, like scrawny guy. I was like, oh, he's quite tall. Yeah. yeah. That, it's just w- weird stuff. I've got, th- and I forget, and they'll come mm-hmm. back to me, th- stories like that, that it just sound like I've made them up. But these things all happened, you know, having dinner with the Rolling Stones on a rooftop in Madrid. Because Jet
1: played support for the
2: Rolling We did a lot, so yeah. A lot, right? Yeah.
1: yeah. And so I was always interested in that because I'm interested in the bands and what the interaction is between, you know, because often, like sometimes, you know, a band will have specifically invited a band on to be, you know, their support act for the tour and they might have a lot of interaction. But, of course, mm. in so other situations you might do support for a band for a whole bunch of time and not even really see the... That's what
2: happened when I played with Springsteen a couple of years ago. Right. We did a whole tour with him. And rarely saw him not on stage, you know? And I don't know. Yeah. I think he was in a He bit was of, on stage for about three hours a Yeah, night exactly. Though, so. <laughs> so we did see a lot of him, yeah, but exactly. didn't have a great conversation. But, you know, we saw mm. Steve Van Zandt and all the other guys a lot, but you just didn't see Bruce. Like, he just wasn't around. Whereas the Stones, we went on two of them here in 2003- we we saw a little bit of them then, but we also played the Enmore Theatre in Sydney with yeah. them, which is... You know, One of the
1: most iconic, uh, uh, famous gigs of all time in Sydney, mm. that Rolling Stones at yeah, the Enmore Yeah, I think Theatre. it holds
2: about 2,000 people and, and I think I've met about 10,000 200, people. 200,000 people <laughs> <Yeah>. were there. <laughs> yeah. But it was pretty incredible. And Angus and Malcolm got up and played a song with them. And yeah, and we, we did those shows. So we were kind of in pretty close quarters. Mm. And then a f- bunch of years later they were doing a, a European tour. And, and what you do is when you're on tour in Europe for the summer festivals, they're only on the weekend. So we come out from Australia. We play Thursday, Friday, Saturday, all these like festivals in Poland or in Austria, all over. You're, you're around a different country every every um, every day pretty much. And then during the week, there's no festivals. So you've got your whole crew over there and it's expensive to have them all. So you don't want to have a day off. So you, off, there's all these tours going on at the same time. So we just jump on the Rolling Stones tour during the week you know, from Monday till Thursday, play with the Rolling Stones and then go to, you know, go to um, Hungary and play a festival on Friday and then, you know, Austria on Saturday and then Germany on Sunday and then back with the Rolling Stones. And we did that for about a month. And you've just become a part of the furniture with them and that, you know, we were having dinner with them. They were inviting us, you know, you never get like them inviting you. You'd get an invite yeah. and then you'd go and that'll be there and they'd be like, hey, sit down, <laughs> you know. But uh, you'd never go there. Ronnie wouldn't be like, oh, what you should do is come over, come with us this weekend and, you know, um, go watch a flamenco band down in uh, Madrid. But, um, you know, they, some one of their people would say, oh, the guys want you to come to this thing. And you'd go and you just, just get looked after and you get hang out and you have dinner with them. And it's really weird. I mean, it must be.
1: Because, I mean, it's the Rolling Stones. Mm. Like, you know, there are rare acts in the world, regardless of what your musical... Tastes are mm. that are as, as big and as iconic as exactly. the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Like, you know, you are, you can't see the Beatles anymore. No. Like, and you know, I guess you two of the modern generation is of that sort of same, you know, superstar yeah. you know, size, but the Rolling Stones are something even above that, mm. you know, in the kind of,
2: I just, the history at, of the world. And at a level know? that has been consistent or growing since 1964 or whatever, you know, mm. So what's that like even to watch those
1: sort of shows? Is there something that you just look at and go wow, I can't believe they are playing this well still at yeah. this
2: age? Well, I can't believe that they've managed to bury all of their <laughs> all of their issues and just get up right. there and do it, you know. Same with Oasis, you know. Mm. We tour with them a lot and you just like, I mean they don't well, yeah, they I was can't say, do it now. They
1: <laughs> they did they have not buried all their
2: issues. But, you know, like um yeah, the fact that there's some bands who can just get out there I and mean, they hate each other, yeah. <laughs> get up and, and, and do it, keep doing it. I guess the the cash and just the also – everyone thinks, oh, it's the money, but mm. as as a musician who plays big shows, you're addicted to that and you, you'd you be the same, you know, doing live. Like live is probably what you live for, I'd mm. say. I mean, I don't want to no, no, put it's, words it's in true. your mouth. I've, well,
1: I've literally just quit a major job so that I could go back out on the road and do mm. live shows because I love doing live shows so much and yeah. I just missed –
2: that feedback, that instant live feedback. Instant get. feedback, yeah. yeah. Which you don't get from any other... No one gives you a round of applause for making them a good coffee or, you know, like... you no. don't, There's not a lot of... Actors are jealous of musicians because yeah. they don't get... And, and stand-up comedians. Mm. I'm jealous of stand-up comedians because, you know, mm. in my mind, you have a stool with a bottle of water on it and that's mm. all you take on tour with you. Well, that is pretty much all <laughs> I take on tour with me. And yeah. I get to keep,
1: you know, all the profits myself <laughs> yeah. as opposed to share them between people. But, um no, I... There is an element of that, but there's also an element of, you know, you can, I reckon with bands, even if they don't necessarily, you know, love each other, sometimes people make great things together, mm. regu- maybe even because of the
2: fact that they don't love each other. Like, I'm not sure that, you know. Fleetwood Mac made a record. Right. <laughs> Rumours when they were all breaking up and hated each other. And yeah. All the songs are about each other and it's amazing. And it turned amazing. into this amazing piece of mm. art.
1: And sometimes even on stage, I mean, I remember seeing... Rage Against the Machine when they made a comeback because they famously, uh, mm. yeah, Zach and uh, Tom, I think, were the two that in particular just could not stand each other. And I remember seeing them do a show at the old Sydney Entertainment Centre that isn't there anymore, but where Zach did not look at Tom for the entire mm. show, like an hour and a half, you'd two hours. you have to try, not, try like, hard, just so hard. forward, yeah. never looked at him. And yeah. the only time they interacted was at the end where they all put their arms around yeah. each other and did the bow. But it was one of the best yeah. rock shows I've seen in a very long time. It didn't stop the show from no. being amazing.
2: Yeah. You're up there to do it. I guess you're up there to do a job. Interesting. Well, I'm always curious about, I mean, with the band, at least you've got three others around you all the time, you know, you've got or more, but mm. there's just you, you know, and the same with solo acts. I'm always like, oh, I wonder what that life is like on the road. If it's lonely or you bring people or you're just used to it, or that's the kind of person you are. So you like that sort of. Being just you in the dressing room. Because, like, for me, the dressing room is, I'm edgy. So I like chatting to people and walking around. But if it's just you sitting there, it's like, I'm like, what are you, where, where do your thoughts go? And what are you, I mean, normally someone comes
1: in for a chat. Like, yeah. there'll be, <laughs> you haven't got the door shut. Yeah. Like,
2: normally there'll be, yourself, putting someone
1: else the... who's doing the venue or like someone from my management or like just someone who's dropped in to make sure that I'm okay. Like, mm. you know, someone will come in for a chat. But
2: there's no one with a common sort of, sort of vibe on the night you know like it's doing the same thing no yeah no
1: that is absolutely right and um the one for me is um when if I go on the road like if I was going out on like a regional tour which I haven't done for a while but like literally spending weeks on the road Mm. I would take a support act Yeah, and and Uh, the reason and the reason I would take a support act was to have someone to hang out when we're in Kalgoorlie
2: exactly (laughs) so they've got to be funny on stage but they've also got to be a Good friend in the dressing room. Yeah, Probably that, first and foremost. Well, uh,
1: luckily I have someone who fits both categories. Oh, that's good. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I literally have toured with the same person for fifteen years and he happens to be a very funny comedian, but also my best friend. So oh, that's perfect. Uh, yeah. That that is that is actually what makes that work well. But I'm interested in what you're saying about that pre-show dynamic. So um what do you like pre-show? Are you a, a like a nervous performer or you just need to like what's the what are you what are you trying to What mood are you trying to get into or be in to play your best shows?
2: I'm like a hummingbird, you know, like I'm buzz around the place. I don't really stay anywhere for too long and I don't really do much when I'm there. You know, a hummingbird just Mm -hmm. sits there and just eats out of a flower and Mm -hmm. then just goes somewhere. I can't sit still. I don't get nervous like, oh, oh, I'm scared to go on stage. I want to go on stage, but I'm not. I get an anxiety that is like, like my wife doesn't come backstage for a show because she knows that. I'm just a nightmare person to hang out with and I'm not grumpy or I just don't really want to talk to anybody that isn't sort of within the group, you mm-hmm. know, or, or, you know, or uh, it's sort of like this, just this m- mood I get in and I just want to talk about, it doesn't matter what, it doesn't even need to be relevant, but mm-hmm. I feel like outside people don't, like I can't, I can't communicate properly and it's not a rude Thing. It's just, that's my space that I hmm. get into to go on. Well, some people are just like super, you know, social and they can go hang out. They can have people backstage. And so I just, I don't like it so much.
1: What about post-show? What are you like, are, oh. are, are you flying post-show? Like yeah. as in, yeah, from the adrenaline? I
2: just did a, I just did a jet tour a couple of months ago with, and I was like, I'm going to do this one and not drink on this tour. See how I go. <laughs> Cause I'd never, I'd never tried that before. And, um, it was quite interesting because I, I didn't. I stopped drinking for, for about 90 days. Well, about, I say about, it was exactly 90, 90 days. 90 days. From the grand final, uh, the last uh, the grand final, I was like, oh man, I shouldn't have got that drunk on a grand final that I really didn't care about. <laughs> um, uh, and so I thought, all right, I'm going to have this next tour. I'm going to not drink. It was recently. Uh, and I noticed after the show, I had enough adrenaline to like get me, through and have a great time until everyone started repeating themselves and slurring. And then I'd be like, I'm off. I'm going to the hotel. I've got to watch a movie, you know, and it was quite a nice, it was a nice change. I don't know if I could do it forever, but it was very good. And it was good for my head to be able to, to know that I could get on stage. I'm not a big drinker before shows anymore. It used to be, we used to be pretty ruthless before shows, but you know, we've sort of realized that it means you don't play very well. But,
1: but when you're doing the drinking before the shows in the in the old days, mm. I mean part of it is like you're in a rock and roll band exactly. and everything's having exactly. a good time and you're allowed to. Mm. Like what a great job. You can get, you know, drunk before you go to work and exactly. people still enjoy your show and you know, you're drunk, so you're out there and you're having a good time and yep. you're like the crowd's Inubitions cheering are, and you're yeah. like, you know. Um I, I get all that. So was there was there something in your mind? Because I I drink when I do stand up. Um, not like I used to. Yeah, and I
2: reckon that would be so hard to be tanned and have you know have, drink so much before you go on and do, well, do it. It's such a structured thing. A lot, yes, a lot becomes problematic. But yeah. what I drink now,
1: which is like a beer or two before yeah, I go that's on stage. Me. Yeah. Is, it just kind of relaxes me enough that I'm, you know, that I I am not uptight and like I am the rest of the day, you know, but I, there is a part of me that when I do go on long tours, if you end up having like a drink or two before, and then maybe I'll have one or two when I'm on stage. And then if you do like, it's a festival or whatever, it becomes a month where you might have a couple after and you're like, geez, I'm drinking six beers a night. When I don't feel like I'm drinking. Yeah, yeah. when that
2: becomes, oh, I didn't really drink last night. I only had eight pints. Yeah, (laughs) I had
1: those two beers before, those two beers during, and those two beers after, and I don't really feel like I drank. Just because you weren't drunk.
2: You didn't drink them all in like 10 minutes, you know. Yeah, I drank
1: several of them while
2: I was working. I feel fine. That was a situation I was in when I decided I need to stop drinking because I just had a kid as well, like mm. eight, she's 18 months old. So I was doing a lot of that at home, just like, oh, I'll just go grab a bottle of wine. And my wife doesn't really drink that much, so she'd have like a little glass yeah. and be like, oh, it would be a shame to put this right. back on the shelf and, you know, it'll oxidize, you know, mm. best drink it, best drink <laughs> the rest of it. <laughs> so, you know, I was doing that every you night, know, like a Tuesday night with yeah. no re- for no reason, with no food, mm. you know, I'd just be sitting there on the couch drinking the rest of a bottle of wine. I was like, this is not normal. This is not a normal, you know, because I don't have to get up at eight in the morning right. and go to work or...
1: You know, yeah, you don't have those structures in place that mm. demand that perhaps you can't do that. Yeah. Although I think
2: you find that
1: it's probably a lot more normal than you imagine. I, Yeah, I think that drinking and particularly that sort of drinking, you know, a bottle of wine a night sort of drinking is actually reasonably common, I, yeah. I reckon. But um, because people don't think it's a problem yeah. and we're told that it's not a problem. And why, Yeah, you know, why, if it's not affecting the rest of your life in a really demonstrable way. Yeah, it,
2: if you're not being, a, if you're not showing up to, you know, right. work with a pelican on your head and your pants around your ankles, yeah. you know. You're all right.
1: Yeah. Sometimes that's why it, it, you know, it takes that complete and utter breakdown mm. for people to deal with things because, you know, they, they, we, society allows so much, you know, particularly with alcohol, mm. we allow so much of it to be problematic up to the point where sometimes you like something really bad has to go wrong for people mm. to go, Hey, maybe you should cut back a little. So it's interesting. Did you have any nerves around that you wouldn't, play in the same way or you wouldn't enjoy it as nah, much or you wouldn't
2: i'd sort of i'd sort of cut back drinking before shows just to kind of like you just have a beer or two never really anything else because you know a beer you can manage you know you know how much you've got yeah you can't pour a bigger one yeah if you've had to you've you've see yeah. two bottles on the bench it's not like a vodka or a, you know having a glass of red or something where it's you could fill it up to whatever you say like, it's a standardized amount of pre-gig booze mm. that you can say, I have two yeah. beers before I show you know? Yeah. There's only so much liquid you can get exactly. in as well. But you know, like another thing, like I, I thought, I don't want to keep this as like my routine because I'm, like I'm saying, I'm, I'm 40 this year. My old man died when he was 46. Oh really? So I'm, clo- I'm closing in on that. And it's like, it's a, it's that kind of stuff is a way. He didn't die because he was a drinker. He, I think he died cause he was stressed and he died of a heart attack. He just dropped out of a heart attack when he was 46 after he so, got home for a run. So I, I'm, I'm always like, um, that's in my mind so, yeah. so, so boldly now. And especially that I have a child mm. that's like, that's really like bold in my mind. That kind of thinking about that all the time about my choices and. Stuff like that. So I'm, I'm interested in two
1: two things about this. Because um, one is I'm 46. Yep. And I actually said to somebody the other day, I said, I'm now at an age where if I drop dead, people would be sad, but they wouldn't think it was like, it's not like I'm 27 anymore. Yeah. If you hear of people, you know, yeah. dropping dead at 46 mm-hmm. years old. And so, you know, it, it part of the reason that I have reprioritized some of the work that I'm doing is literally because what if I did drop dead? Yeah. You know, what if I... Am I doing right now what it is that mm. is making me happy? Because I am now at that age where that it could happen. But for, so from that,
2: just doing the maths, you must have been reasonably young though when uh, that happened. I was about a week out from starting Year Twelve, so I was seventeen.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, and it was like the family all intact at that point. Was this uh, mum no, and dad in the same household? No, sort my, of thing, my, or? my
2: family. Actually, my parents got divorced when I was. I can't really even remember them being okay. together. So yeah. So okay. I have. I have two families. You mm-hmm. know, I've got step. Step parents who have been there since I was, yeah, you know, and who so who where, are, are like family, you know, the same yeah. as family. And where were you live What was your living I was living with my father. Yeah. Okay. And I was at work at, uh, I worked at Smorgies on the pier in Geelong, <laughs> oh, <yeah>? okay, <laughs> nice. cleaning up other people's dishes. Mm. Uh, yeah. And I just got a call one day saying, uh, oh, your dad's sick. He's in hospital. You should get there. And I was like, oh, okay. And uh, you know, in Geelong it's not very big. So mm. I got on my bike and I rode to the hospital and then I got there and he was dead. And it was pretty, it was, it was pretty, pretty wild. I mean,
1: cause you wouldn't, from what it sounds like, he wasn't sick or anything. No.
2: I mean, he knew he had sort of high cholesterol. He yeah. wasn't, he wasn't unfit. He wasn't like, an, you know, like he wasn't like a bodybuilder, you yeah. know, he, he was a plumber. He had, you know, a bunch of guys working for him and he was stressed out because at that time, you know, it was, it was a hard graft, you yeah. know, having a small business. Um, he was not a big drinker, he, you know. He would have never have smoked a joint, you know, you know, uh, everything I've done in my life yeah. has been a million times what he would have ever have done. You know, he, he lived a pretty clean life. Um, but yeah, 46 got home from a run dead. And so, I mean, I kind of met you. So you're
1: about to go into year 12 mm. at school and you've lost your father. How are you at at this stage? How are you coping with the fact that this has just happened?
2: Um, Oh, probably not how I would cope with it now. Pretty stoic, you know, small kind of, not country town, but, you know, working class town Uh, in the late 90s. You didn't go and see a counsellor, you know. You would, I'd do that now for sure. But then like, you know, that's just not how I, you know, you and you know, that age, you're, you're all... Yeah. Piss and vinegar, you know, you're all, you know, you know, 17 years old and, you know, you you think you know, you think you know a lot about the world. So, you you know, you're like, I can deal with this. You know, so. But, you know, it was a, it was a weird, it was a weird few years because it wasn't long after that, that I joined Jet and right. all this stuff happened. And it, it felt like a long, it felt like a long time at the time. But looking back, I joined Jet in two, midway through 2002 and this happened at the start of, um, 98. So, you know, it's not that long really in hindsight. No. And even to like not have your old man around to
1: see exactly, you know,
2: yeah, that used to really upset me. And now, like, he's been dead longer than I knew him, you know, which is wild. You know? So, okay. So, you
1: you then have a child of your own. Mm. Um, and does that change, like, you know, it sounds like at least in some ways that is very much like change the way that you approach your life. Um, in what ways has it changed it? Were you someone who always wanted to have kids? Was that something that you always imagined that you would be a
2: father? Not until I met my wife, Lani. Mm. I didn't think I would. I didn't think I'd get married until I met her either. But, you know, we also, we had a, like Lani and I had a stillborn baby um, before we had our daughter. Uh, So that in itself was another stress, you know, like it was um, very, very tough and brought back a lot of, Things that probably I was experiencing when I was eighteen. But I think I had the tools now to deal with it in a better way and I was much, much better at dealing with it. But it was still one of the most devastating things. Um I mean,
1: thank you for even sharing that with us. I it's such such, such a tough area this Stillborn, oh, because people feel so uncomfortable Mm. talking about it as well. Absolutely, right. And
2: I feel like you kind of have to because otherwise the the baby, uh, you know, mm. her name was Mickey. Yeah, uh, she then she she didn't exist if you don't talk about it because that's all you can do. So I do talk about it, and and the the hard thing is like, the hard thing is especially for my wife, like she was. Pregnant, 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 you know, like right. 30 weeks, 30 something weeks. Um, and all of a sudden we ha she's not, and we don't have, you know, people like, oh, where's your, mm. people that don't know you so well. Right. It's very difficult. Especially when you live in like, we live in Fitzroy, you walk around, you see people every day, you know, like you're walking around the people you don't even know, or people from the coffee shop or the supermarket. So yeah, it's tough. And and then the, the next pregnancy obviously was really stressful. Uh, with, you know, my daughter now, because just because of what happened and I just assume that's what happens. That was my reality of Mm. how this goes. So yeah, it was, man, that was pretty, um, pretty crazy. Yeah. Especially after, you know, just highs and lows, I just got off that Springsteen tour I was telling you about. So I just had this great time and everything was amazing. And then crashed not long after straight down. And then you're of the age where every, every second day your friends are like, oh, guess what? We're pregnant. And you're yeah. like, oh, man. You know? Yeah, pretty uh, one of the most uh, profoundly sad and hard things that I've had to do. But, you know, everything you learn from, <laughs> you've got to take a positive out of it. And I guess this is what I was saying when we started. Like, I try and find a positive lesson from everything rather than let it all get me drive me into the ground. So,
1: so now, well, you have a, your second child, Mm. you know, and, um, uh,
2: you know, you, you are a father. Mm. Um, which is, feels weird when people say that you are a father or when she calls me, she calls me dada most of the time. mm. She's in, she's small, but when she calls me dad, I'm like, wow, that's like pretty abrupt. That's like, I'm a dad. You know, I should be listening to Dire Straits, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, uh, so, did you have a philosophy towards being a father? Like, it was there, you know, did you have a sense of what sort of father you wanted to be? Were there things that you wanted to do that you did, you definitely didn't want to do? Like,
2: yeah, definitely. Um, I wanted to be super present, uh, utilize the fact that my lifestyle, it does take me away, mm-hmm. but it does allow me to be there through the times when you wouldn't normally be there. You know, like the first, most, most fellas get 10 days of paternity leave and then they're back to work. Whereas I got to hang around, I didn't schedule anything in, you know, I kept it pretty, pretty loose around there. So, and my mate, my mate, I got, you know, my mate, Dave Lawson, um, actor and all around funny guy. He, he said, yeah, I took a year off when my kid was born. I was like, Oh, that's, what a smart thing to do. You know, you can, you can, you can do that. And Oh, well, you know, my f- friend Charlie, who I do my football yeah. podcast with,
1: and he's just had a, a baby and, you know, the great thing about, you know, his wife's a director and he's an actor and, you know, it's really been the best thing that could possibly be because they they very much are co-parenting mm-hmm. and they're both very present. You know, it's a good, being an artist or a musician or an actor, yes, you there are going to be times when you are away and on the road and these sort of things, but you also,
2: when you are around. Yeah. You are, you are around, yeah, yeah, for better or worse. You yeah, know? <laughs> I mean, I, I was, I was on, I had to go on a tour of Europe when she was ten days old. Yeah, you know, so that was it. it comes with its, you yeah. know, hard times as well. But you know, definitely want to be present and just fun. You know, like my dad was great. I love it, I mean, I don't really. It's hard because you sort of forget. Over right. the years, like the smaller parts, you know, of it, because it's not reinforced over the, you know, the, the yeah. memories aren't reinforced. So
1: many of our memories aren't memories; mm. they're reinforcements yeah. of memories. Yeah, you or, know? or
2: like their adjustments yes. and yeah, absolutely. At, and at
1: family Christmas, they keep bringing up that. I mean, I have a memory of. Uh, from when I was about four years old, I believe it's my first memory, which is me, uh, because, uh, standing on it, my dad was playing a Victorian level yeah, country cricket in mm-hmm. some tournament up here in the city. And at the end of the game, I stood on the, you know, one of their coffins with, you know, with a cricket gear in the middle. And I did all the instructions like for the six and the fours and all these, yeah, you're out. And all the guys gathered around and laughed and thought it was incredibly charming. And that, that to me is my first memory. Mm. But I don't think I really have that memory. Yeah. I think my dad and my mum have told me that story so many times that I now remember that story. But yeah. I don't think that if they hadn't kept telling me that story, I would remember that story at you, all.
2: You, yourself, you are an unreliable narrator. Like, yeah. you're the worst. <laughs> and I'm the same. Like, you know, I'll embellish stories yeah. and then the embellishment becomes yeah. a truth because you forget. Because, yeah. you know, who wants a, a boring story is a boring story. Right. You know, you've got to give it a bit of mustard. Yeah, thing, I'd know? rather people <laughs> embellish yeah, it. I'd, yeah, I'd rather make it yeah. an interesting story yeah. than just be like... Yeah. You know, just end on mm. flat, mm. you know, even if it's not a lie, but you just twist a couple of the details to yeah. give it a bit more drama. Yeah, you know? when I said we we're on tour with the
1: Rolling Stones, yeah, what okay. I mean was <laughs> Matchbox yeah. 20. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I meant chocolate starfish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so, yeah, okay. So the philosophy is to be around. Do you have, is a boy, girl? Girl. 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 Um,
2: Okay, I'm going to ask you this one. I mean, that's a pretty lame philosophy to bear around. But no, no, it's just I to be a present, be present, really engaged and kind and and fun and always willing to never be too busy to and rush them around, you know, like, come on, let's go, we've got to do this. Like, And I do find myself doing that or being like, yeah. Goldie, don't do this, don't do that, you know, and you're like... I just spend the whole day telling her not to do stuff. I can't do that cuz that's just terrible just like stop. She's going to do that. She's going to pull the she's going to pull up the basil mm. plant you just planted. And, and she's going to sniff it cuz you showed her to sniff it one day. You didn't just you didn't tell right. her to rip it out. And you, know you know I mean? telling her to not do it isn't going to No. They, you want them to explore right. and have, you know, just be free, you know, and not be I hate it when you see you know you see people, and I don't want to judge, but you know people just constantly telling their kids off in a supermarket yeah. It's like they just just let' them, just let them pull that thing off the shelf. it's not it's gonna be fine, it's okay you know?
1: like every every generation has had people you yeah, know kids pulling <clears throat> things off the shelf,
2: and I understand, don't worry, I do understand the frustration yep. that you can get, and it's just gonna get worse and worse and worse but I guess it's part of the roller coaster.
1: Uh how important to you and this is um a question I'm very interested in is uh the fact that she barracks for the same football team as you. Know?
2: <laughs> Before she was born she had a she had a woolen um a woolen Geelong jumper like ready to go. She doesn't even fit into yet so I've had to buy her several since but yeah no she was she's a she's a Cats. cats my, I'm a, my 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 wife she's from she's from born in sydney yeah so um she she came she moved to melbourne when she was about 18 and so she adopted a football team when she got Mm. down and what team did she adopt i'll tell you in a minute okay uh she (laughs) (laughs) so we met we met in 2000 midway through 2012 right and geelong had just won 2011 the one we weren't meant to win so you know i was like what are you doing barracking for that team they're never gonna win one you know who it was
1: uh, so hang on, What you were for that t- horsewoman? It was the bulldogs. The bulldogs. She a bulldogs fan. <laughs> she was. Yeah, she. You turned her back, did I you? I turned her back. But you're a bulldog, aren't you? Yeah, I'm a bulldog. Yeah, but my dad was Geelong. Oh. So my dad's Geelong farmer. Yeah, a lot of them are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so my dad's Geelong, but uh, yeah, no, I
2: I'm, How I'm did a that bulldog.
1: Happen? Well, he, funnily enough, so my dad's from a Collingwood family.
2: Oh, and um, it's a tradition. So uh, this unlo- disloyalty is a tradition in your family.
1: Well, it says something about my father. Like my father is a very interesting man in that he's like, he, he has an incredible sense of self is what I would say about my father. Cause it's a very quiet, calm sense of self. Mm. Like my dad's been a farmer since he was, you know, 14 years old. He decided that's what he wanted to do. He's never drunk alcohol, never smoked a cigarette, you know, married the first woman he ever kissed, you know, but None of that is because of religion or, mm. you know, sort of morality, that sort of thing. He's not religious, like he, at all, like, but not demonstrably not religious. Like yeah. he is just a person who very much knows himself and what it is that he wants to do. And, um, he came from a family where my granddad, Mad Collingwood, every other kid, like he's got, you know, five or six yeah. brothers and sisters, they're all Collingwood, all their kids are Collingwood. Like it was a, you know, one of those classic Collingwood families where mm. everybody was. And my dad, for whatever reason, decided to bear it for Geelong. And so then when we were growing up, he gave us all the option to yeah. choose our own team. That's good. So I'm a Bulldog. My brother's Essendon. I think Sue's barracks for the Saints. You know, like mm. we all have our own teams, which, I mean, there was a period of time though when as a Bulldogs fan, I was like, why did you not convince me to bear it for yeah, Geelong? Yeah, 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 Geelong yeah. are
2: great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was born down there, so I was—I yeah. kind of had it. you know, my, Well, that's right. But, you know, the funny thing is my, my um, stepfather who's, Married to my mum. He's a mad Carlton fan. And my mum's side's Italian. They're all mad Carlton. Right. Um, uh, My stepdad's dad played for Carlton and won a grand, grand final with okay. Carlton. Yeah. So I remember one day I was went to, when I was a kid and my stepdad was taking me to, you know, buy a school bag and it would have been like seven. My parents probably got divorced when I was like four. So, you know, Graham, my stepdad's on the, on the scene and he's like, take, and I remember like, They'd sold out of Geelong bags, school bags. So I was like, oh, the Carlton one's pretty much the same color. So I, I got it. I bought a Carlton bag. Right. And then I showed up at my dad's house with a Carlton bag. And I just remember him pointing at it and going, "Hmm, oh, Carlton. <laughs> but in hindsight, imagine the disappointment. Like my dad, I show up to my dad's house and my new stepdad's Team, right? Bag, he'd be just like, right. I'm losing, <laughs> I'm yeah. losing this child, you know. So I, I, I remember the guilt. I remember it's the first time I just felt oh, I've done something wrong and I've upset. Not that he was upset, but no. I felt that I've upset him and and by something I've done, you know. And I wouldn't have been that old. But I would have been seven or something. But I just remember the bag. I remember the. Di- And it's not one of those memories that I've made up, you know, or that, you know, it's, it's changed. I just remember the, I remember the scene like it's a movie, you know, I remember him, he was carrying the bag and I remember him turning it around and seeing the little emblem, the Carlton emblem on it and just going, "Hmm, what's going on here? (laughs)
1: Um, Do you... Were you a, a, a sporting person? Because you're like a big guy, as you know, like a tall guy, as you said, you've got mm. like an athletic build. Like were you
2: ever, you know, like were you a sports person at school? I, I, I played sport, but I was never very good at much. I, I played footy until under 18s. And then I remember my last game was playing a game. We, we'd, we'd actually got to come up to Werribee to play and stuff. And we played against Werribee one day and like there was a guy, one of the guys we were playing against had no hand and he was like, banging his stump into people and, (laughs) and there was, and like in my team, it was like, it was like a preseason game and you know, the ground's really hard and two of my teammates like broke their wrists or one, no, one broke a collarbone and one broke a wrist. And I remember I was playing in, playing music then and I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to break my hand. I want to go home and play music with my, my friends. So I kind of, you know, I kind of, um. Sort of gave gave away. I do like. I mean, I exercise a lot. I was Mm. at the gym with Bob Murphy this morning. Oh yeah, nice. He, you know, we try and keep each other. He keeps he gets skinnier and skinnier, but uh, as he gets on, but impossible. Yeah, (laughs) I'm one of those people who can't. I have to exercise for my brain, and I'm just like, if I don't, I'll just tub out real quick. Mm. I think it's because I like food and I like a drink, so I just put in the extra work so that I can do that. But also, you know, with my family history as well, like I like to keep you know I, I probably was i was pretty tubby in, in from periods in jet which i probably put down to the the food the drugs and the booze which is uh a, a, you know not a great uh, trilogy of things to you know bring you longevity so i've cut back on you know a lot of that well all of one of them <laughs> <laughs> you can make up
1: your own mind at home guys yeah yeah um so i am interested in that though but i i'm interested in the idea of uh you know you firstly Having an idea that you wanted to play music, like, because I, I have a very similar incident in my life. I broke my leg playing football. It was the last game of football I ever played, broke my leg playing football and I stopped because I'd started doing stand up at that point. And I was like, well, I can't afford to stand up with a broken leg. Yeah. I can't afford to like play, you know, sport on a Saturday and not be able to go to a show on a Saturday night because I've, you know, hurt myself. Mm. So that was it. I I finished and I had a sense of going, well, I'm giving up this scene because I believe in this other thing more. At that stage, was it just because you wanted to play with your mates or was it because you were thinking? Like, did you think, I guess the question I'm trying to get to is, did you think that playing music would be your career, the thing you no, did with your life?
2: I wanted it to be. And I yeah. actually wrote it down when I was like 13 or something, you know, okay. like, yeah, you know, but not, not like I'm a goal setting, like genius. Yeah, I just remember... My mum got into like, oh, you got to write down your goals, you know, when I was like, mm-hmm. you know, they must, cause she was a school teacher. So they probably had, you know, they were probably pushing some course at the time, you know, yeah. like of goal orientated classwork. So she's obviously testing out on me. I can't, I don't even know. Um, uh, And I remember writing down like, oh, you know, I want to be in a famous, ba- I want to be a bass player in a famous band, you know, and I wrote down all my heroes. It was like, Chris Novoselic and Paul McCartney. And you know, I just wrote all these bass players down because it was like, write down your heroes, write down who you, you know, and then it happened. But, you know, I, t- I didn't strive. I didn't like follow some course, like, m- you know, meticulously to no. get there. It just, it just falls into your lap. I moved to Melbourne because I got a job um, at a engineering, uh, a audio engineering place, a mastering place. So that brought me to Melbourne. Then I started meeting people. Uh, and then I was, I remember I was working in a call center, like after the my the place I worked at shut down, I was working in a call center, answering phones in the complaints department for Vodafone thinking, if I don't Would get out. Would have been out- a pretty busy job at oh, the time. Oh my sorry. God. <laughs> if I thought, I remember thinking, sitting there and I worked there for a year, it's not far from here. I remember sitting there going, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to be one of those people who just do this forever. So I just quit and I just enrolled in uni for any course, any course I would get. I did terribly in high school because obviously my year 12 was disrupted Mm. by, you know, and I was just goofed off. I was into like doing drama and whatnot. Um, and I enrolled in uni, started working in pubs, you know, just get out of like that rut. And then pretty much as soon as I did that, I started meeting more people and doing more things and Met the jet guys, you know. So I was, I was always wanted to have a career in music, but whether, you know, it's a tricky. It's like stand up, you know. You can, you can want it as much as you, you know, as much as anybody. But if you're not, if you're not good at it, then it's never going to really happen. You can't, you can't work hard and it. And then you, there's always an element of luck, luck as well. You can't, you can't deny how lucky. Like the the spark needs to be. You need to be in the right place at the right time, but you need to be doing the right thing. And you need a hell of a lot of of luck for that to work out. So, okay. So you end up playing with Jet.
1: Mm. Um, How long into you playing with Jet does it all suddenly, because from the outside, because I was at Triple J at the time. So while all this was happening, Mm. so I have memories of it from one side of it, yeah. which is because, you know, at Triple J, we used to have these music meetings, you know, where people would bring in sort of new music, things that people were excited about. Mm. You know, we'd have these conversations around, you know, what bands were kind of making noise on the scene, these sort of things. And then occasionally you just suddenly hear about someone where you're like, this is all anybody's talking about. Mm. And from my side of it, my memory of what happened, that's what it felt like with Jet. It was suddenly... Everything was jet.
2: It was fast. Like, don't worry. Like it it, it, it is never as fast for you because you're there in the mines, you know, doing all the digging, you know, doing all the, playing all the terrible shows and lugging your gear in a, you know, on a tram and stuff to rehearsal. And it's also the years that you've been just learning your instrument, you know, right. like all those years, all those years you put in, but. There was, you know, But once it started rolling, it was quick. And it was kind of the nature of the time. It was, we got noticed outside of Australia first. We got NME, we, we put a seven inch out and NME got their hands on it and said it was great. So it kind of came from from the UK backwards to here. And then uh, we had, then all of a sudden everyone was really interested. You know, we had a little live following in Melbourne, yeah. and, you know, we'd be able to play there was a string of shows where it was like at the Duke of Windsor. Again, it was like a residency on Wednesday, Wednesday nights. So the first one, there was like 50 people there. The second one, there was a hundred. Third one, there was 200. The fourth one, there was a line around the corner and all the record companies were there. You know, that's how it worked back yeah. then. You know, it was still, and everyone, the, the, the focus of the music industry was also on Australia because the Vines had just got huge. Yep. And then you know, the Dattons were from, you know, they were from New Zealand. And so it's like the eye of Sauron. It's like this slow moving things like Australia, that's where they've got to find the next thing. And luckily we were in playing the right kind of music mm. at the right time, writing good songs. Cause you can write good songs and no one ever right. hears them, you know? Yeah. Your music cannot be
1: the music style of the time or what people are excited about and those sort of things as well. Sometimes, mm. whereas exactly. Yeah. There was definitely a thirst and an energy mm. for that sort of huge style of Australian, you know, rock music. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that must, there must be something quite amazing about mm. suddenly being, oh, absolutely. you know, oh. going from this, you know, pub band playing 50 people to, you know, you know, selling out shows, you know, getting, you know, reviews in NME, like suddenly you're these, you know, bunch of blokes from, you know, Melbourne and Geelong, you know, like who exactly. are, who are all, and suddenly you're just like, hang on. Like, yeah.
2: And we weren't cool people. Like we didn't know anything. Like, right. I think my nephew now is the same age as I was then. And yeah. I'm like, you are so much cooler than I was. <laughs> like how, like, I don't know how I, I was just like, I was still like a Geelong kid, you mm. know, cause there was no way to know as much back then, you know, the right. world was a lot smaller it felt. But, um, you know, and the first time I ever went on, went overseas was to make our first record. I'd never left the country before that, you know, first international flight was to go make Get Born in LA. So pretty wild, you know, I hadn't, I didn't, couldn't afford to travel before that really. (laughs) Uh, so what was the, you know, when you,
1: that sort of in that first, you know, that first moment where you make the album and then suddenly, you know, there's a great deal of success around the album. Was there a moment where you were suddenly like, Oh, right. I'm we're like, you know, uh, we're a big deal.
2: Yeah. Uh, Look, it's funny because you make the album and then you go and no one's ever... Heard. It doesn't come out right. like You finish making the album in, say, February and it doesn't come out till October. Mm. So, in between, you're just slugging it out, right. playing to nobody. And I remember playing to three people in Hamtramck in Detroit and two of them left the room <laughs> and the other one worked there behind the bar. So, it was just like you just... There's more people... When there's more people on stage than there is in the crowd, you know that it's like... You know, and we did. We we, we I believe union rules. So you don't have to go on with the show. Yeah, I, think norm- yeah. I think normally it's like there's got to be more people in the audience than there is on stage. That's the stuff people don't see. They just see the yeah. success. But we toured, and we were really focused on the states, and you know, it paid off because we got a platinum record over there. But we got in a van and I, and I you know twelve seater van and drove around the country nonstop. It's like we always say it's like painting the Sydney Harbour Bridge. You start at one end, and by the time you get to the other end. You got to start, you got to go back to the other end and paint. Like it, it's such a big country that you like, you'd start in New York and work your way to LA and play all the places in between. And then you just go back again and do it again. So know.
1: tell me at that time, what's your, what's your highlight and your low light of was, doing that?
2: Oh, there wasn't a lot of low lights. Cause it was just like, just was, fun. the low lights were just like, yeah. you know, oh, no, there's nothing really yeah. like having an argument yeah. with someone or whatever, yeah. you know, in the band, but the highlight was not getting a piece of bad news for like four years. Right. You know, just having your manager call you up every day and like, all right, this is happening here. We're going to, you know, we're doing a Scandinavian tour because you know your record's going number one. It's like, oh, what? You know, like for four, like for four years. And then when it starts, you know, when we put our second record out, we were bitterly disappointed with how it went. But at the same time, we, funnily, when we put our first record out, there was no, there was no iTunes. Our song, I remember, girls, the iPod commercial right. song. I remember. So there was no iTunes. There was no youtube there was no facebook there was no myspace there was no friendster even there, yeah. none of these existed so in between that record and our second record and downloading and napstar and all that stuff uh and also you know natural drop off from a hugely successful first record with what our second record was which in hindsight was still really successful but we were just comparing it to this monolith that was this first record we had um we were we were we were devastated that it didn't do as well. You know, we thought, oh, this is going to go crazy. But, you know, it just was a good selling record rather than like a record breaking, you know, like selling record. Like that first record of ours is probably 11 times platinum in Australia.
1: Well, I was going to say, like when you've hit the jackpot first time around, Mm. like what did you feel like your expectations going into the second album? Were they... You, w- w- that it was going to be a continuation of how successful absolutely. the first one yeah, was, absolutely.
2: Yeah. Just because you know you're arrogant like that, and you don't know any better. And well, why just, would you think yeah, anything else? anything you think, you oh, made an album, whatever we love, whatever we, we whatever, it. We, whatever <laughs> we do, people will love, right? And you know, people still did, and yeah. and, but I think you know, you get that natural. I mean, not always, but you get that natural drop off where those people that buy one album a year, who who are just like, oh, I'll buy that one album that's that big album yeah. that year, they maybe don't buy your second record. It's the fans that buy your second record, you know. Uh, so how did you deal with that at the time? Because if
1: you have an expectation that things are just going to continue upwards in the same upwards direction and instead they just still go upwards, but they just, you know, take a more gradual upward incline rather than the steep incline. Was there a hard readjustment where people like, was there, I mean, imagine there was disappointment around that? It was a lot of disappointment that.
2: internally. Yeah. Um, it was, it, it really, um, it really rattled everybody because, you know, like you you seem to expect it and it's stupid of us, you know, mm-hmm. to expect something and you try and find blame. You try and blame, you know, what? You know, is it this? Is it because of that? Is it, you know, you know is it manager? Is it yeah. your agent? You know, it's like, but ultimately it's you making music and it maybe didn't connect or it did connect and you just have a lost perspective because, you know, like if, if we sold, if I put a record out tomorrow and sold as many as that second one, I would be stoked. Right. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Yeah. Any band would be, but our our reality was, you know, oh, it's going to be bigger, you know, because well, that's how the history had gone. But yeah. but that the record industry was declining at that stage, but no one had really noticed it as much. I remember when our manager showed us YouTube for the first time. I was like, "This is not going to take yeah. off." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why would you want to just <laughs> upload videos to it? What point is that? And lucky it wasn't investor. was lucky it wasn't in wasn't an investor yeah. meeting, you know. Uh, but I know what you
1: mean. It's the changing nature of the industry entirely. But when mm. you're in the middle of it, you're not taking into yeah. account those factors. No. You're, and you know the other thing about art, and this is particularly music. You know the worst thing about it is that, like sometimes the greatest of it isn't necessarily appreciated mm. at the time because you know of a myriad of different factors. Yeah. Like people can rediscover. That sort of music, they can, artists can mm. be discovered well after, you know, and artists can spend most of their career, you know, playing small shows and, you know, go and die. And then people like exactly d- discover their music and love it. I mean, you're making something that, you know, can be listened to for the rest of, mm. you know, time that people listen
2: to music. but Yeah, and you've got to forget about the yeah, commerce of it and, right. and, and you're just so wrapped up in it and that's all we... We worked for you know that was all yeah. we you know, but in you know I don't regret anything you know and I think records as well and decisions I always think records are, um it's not a it's not music it's a bunch of decisions you made at a time and place and it, if you if you try and you know think retrospectively about it that and you would oh change this and this it's that's not how it's not a record it's, it's these the what makes a record is you made this decision that now and you said this is what we're doing this part this vocal these lyrics that's that's what making music is and any art really. It's like a series of decisions. It's not it's not w- what it is in the end. It's like that's that's kind of what makes it, you know, that's the fun of it and you can't think back and go like, oh, I changed this or this or this and then you can't learn from anything, Will.
1: I love it. That's great. <laughs> no, that's a really great insight. So, okay, so Jet isn't the only band that you've played with though. No. What do you get out of like the other projects that you do?
2: Um I mean, I've I've started after Jet, you know, after I sort of figured out like how to get, you know, that people would actually want me to play with them. I started getting all these offers to play with other, like as like their bass player, you know, and I went like, I got a call from Peter Garrett one day going, oh, Mark, I'm going to make a, going to make a solo record before, you know, this is just before Midnight Oil got back together. He's like, I want you to play bass. I was like, of course. Of course, I'm going to go say yes to Mr. Garrett, oh, you know, like go on tour with him and, and make a record with, with him and one of the other Midnight Oil guys. It's fantastic. And then not long after that, I got a phone call from Michael Godinski <laughs> asking me to do a favor, but you know, it's not really a favor when Michael asks, because <laughs> you know that one day you're going to be in a, like a prison in Poland yep. and you're going to have one phone call and yeah. you know who you're going to yeah. call. <laughs> so he called me up and said, Mark. <laughs> I need you to do me a favour I need you to I need you to I need you to go on tour with Brian Adams <laughs> and I was like Ryan Adams he's no like, Brian so I, yeah I went I had I went on tour with Brian Adams because his bass player had quit just before an Australian tour and had a week to learn 27 songs and then go play an arena tour I mean what <laughs> it, what is that experience like it was like the, one of the most surreal holidays from reality that I've ever had like there was a he had a, like a chef that traveled with us, had cooked food for us all the time. And, you know, if we'd get in, we'd have all these nice cars. And I was just treated like I was a member of the band. So I'd right. have a nice car driving me around with a sandwich that I wanted on the seat when I got in it that Manu had made. He's <laughs> his, his French guy. And it was great. It was like, you know, interesting, like way of touring. You know, they're all older guys and they just, they're all like, you know, the, the drummer, Mickey, he he played on like all Hall & Notes' records right. and stuff. So like, they, you know, they'd been, they were like old pros. And it was great to play with all these like old American American session guys. You know, they were really great players. And, you know, I've never been a massive Brian Adams fan, but it was pretty cool to play Summer of 69 69 <laughs> with well, 20,000 I mean, right. people. You're in a stadium
1: in... show yeah. and
2: you're playing Summer of 69. Yeah. It does kind of feel like... It you're... was really weird. Yeah. <laughs> It was great. It was like two weeks away, a holiday from earth, uh, you know, and it was just in Australia. It was just like a national tour and it was done and they said goodbye. And... Hyp- hypothetical question. Um, if you could play bass in any
1: band that has existed in history, like you get, you know, fantasy camp, you know, you get to
2: play, but what, what band would have that been? Or oh, that look, be? it's, it's hard. Cause I'm a massive Paul McCartney fan, but like, you don't want to be. You don't want to be taking it. You don't want to take his spot. Well, you could say Paul. You could. You've got. Paul can play the piano. He can, I am. I know. am. I am. I do play in a Beatles show though, yes. which um I am dealing with some issues right now because we have a show scheduled uh, on the weekend, and well, when this is come, I don't know when this comes yeah. out, but um, and in Sydney, it's absolutely. Coming down like it's there's so much rain and thunder that I don't even know if we're gonna. It's an outdoor show, sold oh. out show at the Taronga Zoo, so we're trying to figure out what's happening. But it's a pretty stressful day when you know you get so you, you spend so much time getting ready for this show and putting it together and excited that it's sold out and it's going to be this great event and then and all the proceeds are going to bushfire oh. bushfires and well. it's, and it's pissing and it's down and, and it's pissing down and I'm mad, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, you know the, I know,
1: the rain is putting out the bushfires. So I, I, I guess that's, that's part of the joy. And of it does
2: need it, but like, yeah. I'm still like, couldn't it hold off for one day? But, um, yeah. So we do Abbey Road live, which you've obviously seen, which is a bit of a Australian super group. And um,
1: so t- tell me, um, about yeah, the Beatles, because was McCartney the favorite just because of the bass or was McCartney
2: no, always the, he's just the virtuoso yeah. on it. You know, he can't invent it like, like, Pretty much spent my life trying to play similar to him, you know, mm-hmm. it's Im- melodically in the style of. So, putting together this Beatles thing with um with all with Cram and Darren from Powderfinger and Davey from UMI and amongst others, um, it's like a bit of a nerd fest where you get to really open up the hood and really poke around in the songs. Because funnily enough, I didn't actually learn that much it was almost like a daunting thing I didn't want to do is learn all of these McCartney bass because they were quite complex and idiosyncratic and difficult because he was just an improviser. So he just would run it a couple of times and then he'd smash it out and then there'd be no pattern or rhyme or reason to what he's doing. So to learn it is almost like learning one linear piece of music that doesn't repeat. So it's quite hard. And I'm such a Beatles nerd that if I was at a concert and someone wasn't doing it correctly, I'd get pissed off. So I've gone and really like, you know, got forensic on it. Did it give you a greater appreciation? Have you met him? No, I haven't. Paul, oh, uh, really? D- Davey has. Davy met him. You did, did you go and see his show when he, I, or were you, were you away? I didn't go and I should have because I heard it was, he's not coming back and uh, that was it, you know.
1: Yeah, I went to that show. Was it I good? Was, I, I rarely pull favours to, you know, mm. get a ticket or something, but I happen to be. Uh, in town when it was on and I needed to pull a favour. So I pulled a favour and I'm so glad that I yeah. did because it was... I'm happy for you. Yeah, it was spectacular. Yeah. It was...
2: And you know he's never... Yeah. Come, you know, he's not coming back, surely. You know, or, or not coming back. Like, he could still... Just get there on a, on, on, oh, on some of the tunes. Yeah. Look, I mean, t- to be
1: honest, probably just is being kind on a couple of the, mm. the higher notes and a couple of bits and pieces. But, like, you know, he played for a couple of hours and yeah. played, you know, y- you know, so many
2: iconic songs and he was pretty much there on most. Mm. That'll do. Yeah. I'm very happy with that. It's okay. Just to see the man doing yeah. what he does, you know. like Yeah. I I, I've got a history of not going to things that I should have and I think it's this, like, in the back of my mind, I'm always like, I'll probably be away on tour when that happens. Right. I remember when Daft Punk played down at the um, Sydney My Music Bowl and it's like so many of my friends' favourite concert that I've ever been to. Right. And I had a chance to get a ticket and I was like, oh no, I'll be away. And then it sold out and you couldn't get a ticket. It didn't matter who you knew. And... I could hear it from my house and and everyone still talks about this concert. And I was just like, I could have gone, but I was right. just like, oh, you know, I'll be away and then I'll buy the ticket and then I'll have to get rid of it. Um, we need to start finishing up. Yes. Uh, but uh, there's some
1: standard questions that I like to ask on the podcast. So, um, oh, I, I want one more jet question, one more music question. Because I'm interested in when the band gets back together. Mm. So... As you said, there'd been some, you know, like as there is when things split up, there's some, you know, you know, uncomfortableness around it. Who reached out first? Whose idea was it? Do you know? It? Can
2: you remember? We got the offer for Springsteen. Okay. And it was just like, mm, the boss, the boss has asked, mm. the boss is on the phone. Yeah. What do you say to the boss? Look, I just thought, I think we just felt like it was, we, we pretty much pick and choose what we do. And it's quite, it suits me. You know, I'd like to do write some more stuff, but we'll get, we'll do whatever feels right. And, you know, we get offered, offered things tours, and whatnot. And if we think it sounds like fun, then we do it. It's more of a lifestyle thing now where we try and enjoy it, enjoy each other's company and then, um, you know, part ways and get on with our own projects. And everyone's got lots of projects going on and it's good, you know, it's good for everyone to be busy. Cause I think that first time we were all trying to figure out, figure it out, you know, and now everyone's like, you can't just sit around waiting for, waiting to feel better you've got to be proactive you know
1: and that's that's interesting to me so would you say is it more fun now or is it more fun back in the day or just different
2: i enjoy now for it's different but i enjoy the shows now because the the emphasis is on playing really great shows rather than getting pissed and having fun you know and and playing great shows is fun you know it's really fun and playing super well and being like super tight great swing and Rock, rock and roll band is it's pretty hard to beat being up there you know playing in front of you know whether it's 2000 or 40,000 or 80,000 at a festival you know just getting up there you know it's it's not much not much I enjoy more than being on stage but I'm happy to I like being on stage doing playing music in any any regard you know I'll get as much fun out of playing this Abbey Road show as well you know when we when we go and finally go on tour
1: do you um Have a favorite show that you've ever played? Is there one that, you know, if you were going to get to play that show over and over again, that
2: there's one in particular that Uh, you think of? Madison Square Garden in in New York. Got to say, it's pretty special. Strong union rules, though, there. Oh. So I
1: went and saw uh, last year, the year before, the year before last, I went and saw Radiohead play there for four nights. Four nights they did. Um, So, but four nights over. Five nights, right? Now, the thing is, they never have a night off at Madison Square Garden, is my understanding. And a lot of that is because of the union rules, Mm. right? So, what Radiohead did, my understanding is, is they paid everyone for an entire night. So, the night that they had off, so that they could have a night off, everybody who worked at the concession stands, everyone who works in the venue, they all got paid paid, as if there had been a show on.
2: I remember we played, and it was like Soundcheck had to finish by. 6 p.m. or something like that. Six or whatever time it was. It was a deadline sharp. And if you walk, if you get, off, if you walk off stage and you're like, oh, I forgot my wallet, and you walk on stage, mm. you pay everyone in the building for the two hours minimum. <laughs> Every single person who works there, you've got to pay. You've got to fork out. You know, it's a couple hundred thousand dollars to pay everybody for two hours. Wow. You know, and, right. and the and you know everything. Yep. And, Oh man. And some of the T V shows, like you play Letterman and your front of house guy's not allowed to your sound guy's not allowed to touch the desk. He's got to tell a guy what to do. It's pretty wild. I mean, I'm all for unions, but like let let someone do the mixed band without, you know, doing it second hand. Ah, amazing.
1: Uh all right. Um uh standard questions. Yep. Um uh I I would like to know firstly, what do you what what do you consider to be your greatest strength?
2: Uh that's hard. <laughs> Uh, It is a hard question, I think, to
1: ask people what they they consider to be their greatest strengths.
2: I think being someone who can um, sort of lubricate different relationships, you know, help people get along, sort of a peacemaker, I guess.
1: Okay. This one might be easier then. What's your biggest weakness?
2: Um, I am pretty stubborn, (laughs) Uh, pretty stubborn. And I believe that I'm right. To, to a fault. <laughs> if you could, But f- I'm better, I'm, I'm improving. I'm, I, I'm definitely trying to be more, uh, you know, aware of that. When you look at the world, and I don't mean just the, the
1: day-to-day of somebody, you know, behaving badly on the tram, but you look at the bigger world and you, you're a person who's had an opportunity to see the world. What is it the thing that frustrates you the most about the world?
2: Oh, uh, I guess, I mean, it's just, blatant stupidity, I guess, you know, and we know what we're talking about. Just, um, people (laughs) not looking, not listening to the people who know things and listening to the people who you shouldn't be listening to, you know? Um, if you could
1: groundhog day style, live the same day over and over, you know, in Groundhog day, Bill Murray, one of the things he learns how to do is play the piano, Yeah, right? He goes to the piano lessons every day. Now, um, Is there something that you would do if you were groundhog daying it? What would be the skill that you would pick up in your groundhog day?
2: Oh, you know, I'd love to be able to be, I'd love to be able to surf. Yeah. (laughs) Because I grew up down the surf coast and all my friends surfed and I bought a surfboard recently and I'm so terrible at it. And I don't, I think it's like, I don't have great, um, balance and sort of, I'm not very coordinated person. I'm quite injury prone and I just find standing up, even though I've got a nine foot six board, like I find it really difficult and I wish I could surf and just be, I'd be happy just to surf on my Mel, nice and stylish. But, you know, living in Melbourne, it's hard to get the practice in. And you've got to drive down to Geelong, get down there, or drive down to Torquay, I always go that way, and get up at five in the morning, drive and, you know, convince my wife that I can go surfing every day, you know, three times a week with a small child. So, you know, if I could Groundhog Day, I'd just keep practicing surfing and, you know, like when I do it, I enjoy it, but man, it's so frustrating. Um, I
1: I always like to ask people, uh, and this is again, probably a hard question to answer, but I, I like to ask it anyway, because it's my podcast and I get to ask whatever mm. I want to ask. Um, when people speak about you behind your back, what would you hope that they are saying?
2: You know, it's pretty lame, but I just hope that people think I'm a good person, you know, good person, humble, easy to get along with, fun, you know. Okay, the two big ones now. These are the two big ones. Okay. Uh, what do you think happens when we die? I think you become
1: worm food. Yeah. So no religious belief, no, no. sort of spiritual no, belief, sadly. nothing.
2: I wish I had something to hang on to, but, you know, I'm happy to become a part of the ecosystem. And does it, does uh, death play
1: a big part in your thoughts at all? Has it,
2: yeah, yeah. Like as we discussed before, it yeah. does, and it has for a long time. Mm. It's something that I do think of and I... I I find myself thinking about it a lot, you know, especially when you're on the road and you're in cars every day. There was a point on tour where I started getting traveling anxiety because I'd just be like, my, my, my stats are really off here. Mm. Like I'm on a plane and in cars all day in a tour bus, blah, blah. I'm always traveling, moving. Like surely my my numbers are, my, you know, my odds are, are greatly increased. But, you know, you've you got to just let that go. Has it changed since you've had a
1: child I mean, obviously you've had to deal with, you know, death around your I, I childhood as well. ride
2: my bike less in the city. Oh, That's okay. for sure. It's just like something that I got... Sp- I had a few friends who had bad accidents and I got spooked, uh, you know, live in the inner city, inner north. Um, I see people and driving. And when I used to ride my bike all the time, I just, you know, cause it's such an easy way to get around. Mm. Saw some people, like I, some aggressive people things happen to me and I saw things happen to others and it spooked me and I probably ride less now because of my daughter, you know, and it's, it's silly because like there's always places you can ride, but you know, see people opening doors and dooring people and people falling off their bike in front of trucks. And, you know, it's, you know, pretty terrifying. (laughs) Uh, final. This is it. We've got to the end. Uh, time machine
1: question. So um, I have a time machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, by the way. I just need to point that out for legal reasons. But if I did, I would offer you one round trip on a time machine. You can go to any point in history and you know have a look at it if you'd like. But what I prefer is you to answer this question. Yeah, uh, could you? Uh, you can go to any point in your life, mm-hmm. and you can either observe it, just you know see see it, you know, it happen, or you can change it. Do you take the trip and what do you do?
2: Ah, uh, I don't think I take the trip. I don't think I do.
1: That's a, that's a perfectly acceptable answer. In fact, I think it's probably the answer that I would give if I was asked yeah, the same question. Yeah, I
2: think I've seen Back to the Future too many times of your medal, you know... <laughs> if you're with things you know <laughs> didn't you watch Avengers Endgame the, that's
1: not no, how time travel works it's not back to the future anymore there's yeah. a whole new way oh, wow. going back to the past doesn't affect the future because your past I
2: don't want to evaporate you know fade on the facts
1: mate uh, this has been an absolute pleasure I hope you've uh, enjoyed it I definitely have enjoyed it and uh, I thank you very much thank for doing
2: it so, so tell me what you've
1: got coming up let's plug some stuff
2: uh, I've got a comedy festival show shut up yes uh, I did one last Year with Dave Lawson, um, Dave Shed, Dave Shed Show, Stephen Curry, mm-hmm. and um, Ryan Shelton. It's basically a never late, heard of any of them. It's a late <laughs> late night talk show. I'm the music. I'm like the Paul Schaefer, uh-huh. a late night sort of talk show, and we have guests on from uh, the festival. We'll hope that you'll join us this year. I don't think you've been formally asked, but I I'm, have not. Is this I'm formal, formally uh, asking you, you to
1: be one of our guests? Do you have the power to formally ask people? Has yeah.
2: Dave given you that power? I was over at his house this morning, and he said you uh, can ask. <laughs> And last year we, we put it on in a small room and we had to upgrade it to the lower town hall. It was incredibly successful yeah. last year. And um, it was a bit of a buzz going around because it's like, it just, fun. I don't think anyone's done something like, I mean, no. they may have. I'm, I'm a bit of a noob mm. to the, com- I like comedy, but I don't really know the scene. Um, and people were just sort of, what are they? Sort of It was just a bit Fun and you know fun for the guests and
1: well, what I like about it as well is because Dave's super funny. Oh, clearly, Dave's just
2: he's got, but he's not a um He's not, uh, a, he's not a
1: stand-up comedian. No, he's, he's definitely just, a comedian. He's just but I, he's not a like he's a comedic actor. He's a mm. great actor, you know. But he and he does comedy brilliantly. But I think part of what makes that show so special because I've obviously seen some of the online, online stuff yeah. is that he isn't a stand-up comedian. Mm. He has a slightly off. What the you know, stand-up comedian view of the world is, which makes the show a bit more dynamic mm. and interesting in a way that that is what kind of differentiates it from the other stuff. Yeah,
2: he's a funny person. Yeah. He's not a person being funny. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I think, I, I'd like to get Dave on this podcast. So oh, could you please ask him? To I, will, the... I will. <laughs> I will. I will ask him. I think. He, I think you'll. I think he'd do it. I think you could. I think he could find time.
1: I'll tell him, in, at least in the run up to the comedy festival, yeah. give him a
2: decent plug. And uh, what about, is there more arc shows?
1: Is there yeah, more we're, shows? Yeah, well, we're
2: doing um, the Abbey Road live tour um, uh, throughout Australia, which yep. you can look at livenation.com.au, see what shows are still remaining and what tickets are still remaining. Okay, great. Fantastic. Mate, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me.